I think that signals that for all the very material realities of this being a sporting event and an entertainment event and and a, a marketing effort to sell a newspaper, it was also this thing that held people's attention and which they cared deeply about and personally about because of the way the tour was constructed, um, because it never shied away or confined itself to tracks or, you know, ticketed events, you know, which is something that persists to this day. Whoever, you know, goes to the side of the road can see the tour cyclists pass by. Welcome back. I'm Jonathan Kaplan, the host of the Riding With podcast. Today is stage 12 of the Tour de France, and we are back for part two of my interview with Aidan Dopkin. Aidan is the author of Sprinting Through No Man's Land, a book about France and the immediate aftermath of World War I and the 1919 Tour de France. In yesterday's episode, which I encourage you to go back and listen if you haven't, we discussed the origins of the Tour de France in the Dreyfus Affair and in anti-Semitism. Today, we talk about the actual race in the 1919 Tour de France and how and how in the aftermath of such a brutal and bloody long war with trench warfare and towns destroyed and cities destroyed and roads destroyed that they managed to pull off holding this race and whether or not it brought redemption to a nation and healing to, to the French people. So I hope you'll listen. It's super fascinating. Aiden is a great historian, reporter. His other work can be found at the New York Times, the Atlantic, the Paris Daily Review, the Paris Review Daily. He hosts a podcast called War Stories alongside Angry Staff Officer. So in there, they take an element of warfare and they trace its development from inception to the modern day. They focus on the stories of the people who were there at moments throughout. Although right now the show is on hiatus, but you can go back and listen. And it's it's really, it's, it's great work. I mean, it really is. So with that, you can find me on social media, on Twitter and Instagram, writing with J-E-K. Again, that's R-I-D-I-N-G with J-E-K. You can find my Substack column and newsletter, writing with, which is writingwithkaplan.substack.com. Again, it's writingwithkaplan.substack.com. Please subscribe. I can't do this work without your support. And I really appreciate your time and the effort you put into reading and listening. It means a lot. So with that, let's get to it. So DeGrange, right, they decided to do the 1919 Tour de France, and he sends a team ahead of the race to sort of scope it out. Is that a good place to start? Yeah. So, or, 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 you know, I think... I guess I will first say that really the big decision of the 1919 race, um, which was not by any means assured, was to hold it at all. Um, and, and I think to hold it in um, as grand and as uh, of complete a way as had been done to that point. Um, there were periods of time that I'll mention in a second where, you know, they weren't quite sure exactly whether it was possible. But I think if you 
read Henri de Grange, if you read his editorials, um, unfortunately, there have been few uh, English language biographies of de Grange. But if you read um, a couple of the French language biographies, this was a guy who, um, you know, beyond all the business things, was a strong French nationalist. You read his editorials in during World War One, and <laughs> all of those previous aspirations to not have politics in the pages of Lotto go out the door as long as you're talking about, you know, killing Germans. Right. Um, <laughs> right and right. and and this and this is someone whose concept of sporting and athletics, um, which is common at the time, really tied into his sense of nationalism and French pride. Uh, he during World War One is active in kind of getting people's physical fitness up in an effort to have them be more effective soldiers. Um, the kind of his view of athletics lines up with um, a, a broader movement at the time, including the founder of the Olympics, Pierre de Coubertin, Coubertin rather, who kind of views the athlete as this kind of not a professional, but like a an aristocratic member of society who kind of emphasizes all of those physical qualities one might hope for in uh, a good Frenchman. Um, so it, it's hard to separate the politics and the view of physical fitness and athleticism from the particular nature of the tour, because what happens is in 1919, we're just months after the end of the war, Within days of the end of uh, World War One, de Grange announces that the 1919 race is going to happen. Um, does not yet provide the stages, but says, you know, we are going to hold this thing. We are going to hold it in the traditional time in the summer. Um, and we are going to trace the boundaries of our country, the, the, the boundaries that had been, you know, in... De Grange's mind and in many French people's mind had been shorn off um, after the Franco-Prussian War in the 1870s. You have the Alsace-Lorraine, and we are going to trace this new boundary of our country in the way that we have always done. Um, and so then it is a matter of what does that actually look like? Is that literally possible? Um, and in the first months of 1919, you start to see some of the shorter races uh, happen. There is the Perry Roubaix, which I believe is in March uh, twenty April something yeah. or April. Yeah. There we go. Um, Wait, just, a, just one more date for a plot point. The World War One ends the eleventh day, the eleventh hour, the eleventh month of nineteen nineteen eighteen. Eighteen, right, right, and so. And, and I think it's like 10 or 11 days after uh, Armistice is signed, which doesn't, which is not the Treaty of Versailles, which will not happen until the day before the race uh, starts. Wow. But it is, an, it is an end to the fighting along the Western Front. Right. Um, and so in the Paris-Roubaix and in the uh, Circuit de Champ de Bataille, which we don't really have time to talk about today, but it is kind of a more, uh, a tinier multi-stage race um, that is just in the Northeast, just surrounding some of the battle sites. They start to uh, send out scouts to kind of 
look at the old routes, look at what new routes might be possible, um, and I mean, two things become clear. First of all, the the devastation is immense. Um, There are certain towns that they previously would have stopped in or at least ridden through that, you know, literally do not exist at all. And the, in the, the subsequent months and years, the French government would literally say these towns have been martyred for this, you know, for the, for the defense of our country. We will never rebuild them again because they gave up their collective life for the defense of France in world war one. So towns that, that, you know, you would have ridden through literally just gone. So you have that, you have the kind of necessity to figure out what those new places might be. And then between those new places, you have to contend with the roads themselves, um, which were never uh, the best in certain stretches of the country. Uh, You know, the Paris-Roubaix being an excellent example um, that have simply been devastated by the war, if not through direct damage, then through tons and tons of trucks and tanks uh, riding over them in a way that they had never been designed for for years. Um, and so you have the towns that are destroyed, you have the roads that are destroyed and won't be rebuilt. And then you also have the cyclists. Who is going to compete in a race so soon after a war that had total French mobilization um, that saw, you know, around 20 to 25% of, uh, you know, Frenchmen die. Um, that's a, that's insane. Yeah, and, and 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 you know the people who are fighting are the people who are riding the race. Um, in in other in other years, I think you have a total of three former tour riders die um, in the war. Um, and even beyond that, the people who would otherwise still be competitive or just slightly beyond competitive, but still in the mix have been off their bikes for um, a couple of years. years. Um, And so it is not clear what the race will look like up until, and even past the moment that it starts on, on June 29th, uh, 1919. Um, But what is clear is that the Grange wants to and in some ways feels a need to run it and run it in as immense of a way as possible and run it as soon as possible and not pretend as though those previous four years never happened, but building off them or um, using them as a moment of collective catharsis or um, spirit building, depending on how, you know, cynical versus optimistic one is about DeGrange's desires. Um, But they start the race. Um, About uh, 67 people started a a diminishment from preceding years, but still a field. Um, And then, you know, you kind of see what all of those complications start to look like once they're on the route, which is going to be the second longest in history. Wow. That's amazing. And so how does, how does this play out? Yeah. 
almost from the very beginning, the particular manifestation of those difficulties becomes really readily apparent. Um, even before they hit the most difficult stretches of road and, and to kind of paint a picture of what the 1919 route really looks like. Um, they start in Paris uh, and then they kind of take a counterclockwise route uh, heading immediately up to Le Havre uh, and then really tightly uh, following the border of the country in a counterclockwise um, route over 15 stages um, before landing back in Paris uh, after a month, um, a day on of racing and then a day of break uh, every on, over those 15 stages. Wow. Um, and the particular difficulties they see immediately, they were, they were, you know, they were not unknown to the riders and they were not unknown to the Tour de France administrators. Rubber, among other things, was um, still rationed. Most factories in France at the time were dedicated to wartime supplies. So there were a limitation on tubes, um, which is not great in the 19, in 1919 <laughs> because the roads are horrible. Debris is still scattered on them. And there are flats throughout, um, you know, unlucky people between three or five a stage. Um, so that is kind of one of the first things. Um, you also see a quick diminishment of the riders themselves who are oftentimes in no position to be riding in a race like this, or at least are kind of insane in the way that, you know, ultra marathoners are insane for competing, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, so, so, you know, take that as you will. Um, uh, and then among the most competitive cyclists, the teams that they rode for were um, in the way it, it was at that time, oftentimes automobile manufacturers or um, tire manufacturers who had uh, refurbished their factories in wartime for those military needs and had not retooled their factories and was going to be an immense cost to them and didn't have the cost that didn't have the funds in order to sponsor the teams that they, that they normally did. And so instead you have this conglomeration of teams called La Sportive uh, who sponsor about half the tour riders, um, most of the best riders or most competitive riders. And um, they, they set off um, for, you know, less money and with fewer supplies over a route that is as difficult as it had been, even if you don't consider the particular difficulties, which they will most extremely encounter in the kind of 12th through 15th stages where that from Strasbourg um, up through Metz and Dunkirk along the mm. Northeastern part of the country uh, before heading back to Paris. These are, cobbled streets. These are towns that had been destroyed. They are literally riding through what's still called Zone Rouge, which is uh, a pure, uh, an area of France that suffered the most devastation, the most extreme um, debilitating forms of fighting with gas and with um, 
heavy artillery, much of which is still in the ground to this day. Um, we There were no incidents of, you know, cyclists riding over artillery or anything like that. Certainly that not that was ever recounted in the pages of Lateau, but the roads themselves were truly devastated. Um, and the, the cumulative effect of all of this is that by the, the, the final stages of the race, you have um, a, a little over a dozen cyclists who remain, um, wow. who are stubbornly riding until the end. Many of the most successful cyclists dropped out for one reason or another. Um, and yet there are these, um, these few who, who persist, um, and they are not always the people who would have been most competitive in other years. Um, they have that common, that combination of skills that are really emphasized in the tour of those days, which was, you know, perseverance and endurance, of course, um, but also kind of practical skills in terms of engineering and maintenance. They were sometimes people who either because they were older and got slightly more plumb jobs in the military during the war were able to be on their bikes or their positions in the military had them be on bikes. This was the days of um, cycling uh, units um, who literally rode to and from the front uh, in the war. So it is kind of this odd motley crew, including one amateur cyclist who are persisting through some of these uh, even before they hit the battlefields, really just long, long days of, of 18, 20, 24 hours at the, in the worst cases who are still just persisting um, day after day. Wow. And so not to jump too far ahead, but is it, first of all, can you tell us who wins and then is the race viewed as, or does it, become a sort of this cathartic event that brings France together or is there something else at hand? Yeah, I think this is, um, it is a really difficult question um, because my kind of cynical eye, my cynical reporting eye is always looking at, you know, what were de Grange's motivations, you know, why did he run the race? How did he treat his cyclists, many of whom uh, truly hated the guy? <laughs> um, and I and I think, you know, this is a marketing effort that, um, you know, really mistreated the people who were bringing value to it. Um, but on the other hand, this is a really unique event that saw hundreds of thousands of people line the roads in devastated towns to watch this event that um, traverse the entire country. There is um, not speaking specifically to the 1919 race, but um, I've read papers of um, geographers who have talked about how for certain Frenchmen who were maybe living in rural towns, they would not have seen a map of their country. Their kind of understanding of their country, except on an implicit level, would be the towns that they were immediately connected to, which they traded with or you know rode to, who they communicated with. And this sporting event with this newspaper that prints a big 
copy of the map that shows how the town that you're a part of is connected to the next town over that's connected to the end of the stage that's connected to the next stage gives people a certain sense of the entirety of their country in a way that um, education, uh, particularly in rural parts of the country, may not have encountered. And so there is this um, indescribable mythological element of the tour, which Henri de Grange loved that it worked out that way. And he was really good at figuring out um, or persisting in figuring out a way to develop a race that would take a, on a life of its own beyond his aspirations for it. Um, I think you particularly see that at the end of the 1919 race. Um, I don't want to spoil too many of the details, but a Belgian um wins the race over a Frenchman who had kind of been persisting to that point. And in the days after the race finishes, you see the formal pot of money um, put together by Lotto be dwarfed in size by the envelopes of, you know, 20 francs, 50 francs, 100 francs just sent in by people to the Frenchman who had kind of persisted hmm. in spite of all the difficulties he had faced in the race. And I think that signals that for all the very material realities of this being a sporting event and an entertainment event and, um, and a, a marketing effort to sell a newspaper. It was also this thing that held people's attention and which they cared deeply about and personally about because of the way the tour was constructed, um, because it never shied away or con confined itself to uh, tracks or, you know, ticketed events, but rather whoever you know, which is something that persists to this day. Whoever, you know, goes to the side of the road can see the tour right, cyclists right. pass by. Well, I encourage everyone to go out and buy the book. I have it on Kindle. Um, but, you know, I might get a hard copy and send it to you. So, Aiden, I think you've done a tremendous, I mean, it's a great, great work, great idea. Good for you for seeing it through. And um, I hope, you know, we can talk about it more. So thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me on, Jonathan. You're welcome. The Writing With podcast is produced and edited by the team at Palm Tree Podco. Anthony Palmer is the executive producer. 